I tried heroin for the first time when I was 13. Maura Jamie battled drug addiction for nearly two decades. She's been in recovery for 12 years, but she's lost more than she ever could have imagined to drugs. The rug was literally ripped out from underneath me and all of my hopes and dreams were just shattered. Now I'm a widow at 22. And at 43, she's now also childless. So Carter knew that his dad died from a heroin overdose and he knew that his mother struggled with heroin addiction. Yes, and was on methadone and yes, yes. And knowing all that, you would think he would never touch drugs. Mm-hmm. Right. You would think. I'm Angela Kenicky, your host of Grieving Out Loud and the founder of Emily's Hope, a charity I started in my daughter's name after she died of fentanyl poisoning. Today, I'm talking with Mara about how the drug epidemic has shattered her life. I spoke to Mara, who lives in Florida, right after Hurricane Ian hit. Maura, I'm so grateful that you've joined me for this episode of Grieving Out Loud. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Angela, so much. I'm incredibly grateful to be here and share my story. And you survived the hurricane in Florida. You're down in Florida. Yes, I actually live in Fort Myers, about 30 miles from the Gulf, and it's, it's undescribable. I moved down here three years ago. I grew up in the Northeast. And I have never experienced a storm of this magnitude and just the complete devastation and loss on top of my grief. I'm coming up on a year in about a month and it's, it's just so heavy. It's been a really hard two weeks, I must say. It's like one more thing to go through, Uh, uh, right? Right. It's one more traumatic event to like pile on and it's... Is your property okay or people that... Are you okay? Everybody's okay. Yes. okay. Like my family is safe. I do have friends that lost everything, but my home, we had no damage. We had no uprooted trees. A hibiscus tree I had planted for Carter on his birthday. I planted it and it didn't even move. And the next day it bloomed. You know, after the hurricane passed, it made like three beautiful blooms. And I just knew that Carter with us during that storm protected. So, well, I'd like to start by going back to the death of your husband. Tell me a little bit about what was happening at that time and what happened with him. So, my husband, Chris, we actually met in a NA meeting and Narcotics Anonymous. You met in, and, and this was on the East Coast. This no? was actually up north on Long Island. We met in 98. And it was instant connection. And, you know, a few months later, I found out I was pregnant. We were both in recovery and very involved in May and working the steps. And, you know, I was pregnant and we just had this amazing life ahead of us. And he was going to school to become a funeral director. We were living out in East Quag on, on the Bay. Like it was just, I was raising Carter, like life. I was 20. It was 20 <laughs> and my whole life was ahead of me you know and like I had everything I wanted and and it was beautiful and then he got into a accident he shattered his elbow and was prescribed a Vicodin that's when he started using them and you know he relapsed because of 
what, what, what had been his drug of choice? What had been Chris's drug of choice? Drug of choice was and, that and you was, too? Yeah, me too. My drug of you choice too. is heroin. Yes, yes. I I started, I tried heroin for the first time when I was 13. 13? Uh, yes. I grew up in a very wealthy area in New Jersey. I went to a fabulous school. The only trauma, childhood trauma I have are, you know, abandonment issues with my mother, but I had a very loving father, very loving and supportive stepmom siblings. I tried it once and it just, it made me feel what I wanted to feel, which was nothing. And by the time I was 16, I was physically addicted. I was shooting heroin before school. And I was in my first detox and rehab right after I graduated high school in June of 97 and came out, relapsed. And then my dad had had it, sent me off to Long Island to live with my grandparents. And that's when I was able to meet my husband. I was very involved with NA. I managed to put three years together. And then he, you know, he relapsed. And then I relapsed. And, you know, the cycle continued. And then, you know, we had Carter, who was a baby. What made you fall in love with Chris? Just made me laugh. He was so, so handsome. He just had an amazing personality, so much passion. He was adventurous. He was a whitewater kayaker. And when we had Carter, he was just, he was an amazing father. He just loved Carter to death. You couldn't stay in recovery, neither one of you really? We were literally in and out of rehab for like the year of 2000. One of us would go in one month, one of us would go in the next month. I mean, it was a vicious, vicious cycle. And there wasn't any medically assisted treatment like Suboxone. This was in 2000. Like methadone and Suboxone was not really a big, a, 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 really, I didn't know, even know about that. When I got into rehabs and detoxes, they would just put me on like Darvon. And then later on in my years, I, I had been, in, I think, in over probably 15 rehabs and detoxes total. That's until, a lot. Oh, yeah. Until 12 years ago. I, you know, this past February, I celebrated 12 years. Congratulations on that. I want to go back to Chris. So Chris injured his elbow, had surgery, was prescribed an opioid. Right. And that led him right back to heroin, which yep. isn't surprising at all. But this is about the year said so 2000. People don't yeah. really, people don't really know that much about it at that point. Mm -hmm. What yep. happened? It just spiraled, you know, the, he took the Vicodin and then I took a Vicodin and, and then, uh, you know, we were driving into Brooklyn and, and I remember saying in the car, this is the, we're only doing this once. We're only doing this once. And we just got completely sucked in. An addiction to anything, your tolerance builds up way faster than the first time around. And so it came to the point where it was May of 2001, and I, I decided, my mother-in-law took Carter, I decided to go to long-term treatment, Chris decided to go to long-term treatment, and he came home from treatment, 9-11 hit, he was volunteering, you know, at the cleanup, and I was still in the facility I was in. He was visiting me, but there was tension. He was angry. I kind of knew that if we're going to St. Mary, all the odds are against us. He was going to New York City to go celebrate somebody's one anniversary in AA. And then going to watch his cousin play music at a 
club. I was in the facility. I was called into my doctor's office and I immediately knew that something was wrong because the whole treatment team was in there and they're like, you know, we, we need, we need you to sit down. And I immediately felt like one of my grandparents had passed or, or something like that. And they told me, they just said, we're so sorry, but Chris, they found Chris in Larman and he overdosed and he didn't make it. So he had been in recovery for a while. So he maybe used the same amount they had used before and overdosed. Mm-hmm. How old were you? How old was he at the I, time? He was 25. I was 22. 22. And I'm and in that moment, you had a baby at home. Yeah. And even though Carter was two when Chris passed, I know that that caused trauma for Carter. What did that do to your world? The rug was literally ripped out from underneath me and all of my hopes and dreams were just shattered like a broken mirror on the floor. My world was flipped upside down because I had this whole idea of this life plan for myself. And now I'm a widow at 22. Like it was uncomprehendable to me. And so I, after he passed, I, I stayed in the facility for about two more months, came out, and then I still struggled for another like 10 years. You know, I'd get a year here, relapse, you know, a year, you know, six months here, relapse. I also do suffer from mental illness. I, I diagnosed with depression. Well, you know, OCD, I think, you know, mental illness and drug abuse, a lot of time goes. That's what I was going to say. Don't you think that the two are just. Absolutely. But so you were, were you diagnosed with, you said depression, anxiety? And anxiety. Was that later you got that diagnosis? I got that depression when, that diagnosis actually when I was 19. So you were really self-medicating in a sense. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I was self-medicating. You're a single parent. You've got a little kid. You've got these, these addiction and mental health issues. How did you survive those years? I would not have been able to survive without the support of my family. My family was and still are like a godsend. Like I am incredibly blessed to have just so much support. They're always there for me. And that's absolutely what made it through. And and I knew that I I'd done it before, I'd accumulated three years, and that I couldn't leave Carter an orphan. Like, it was coming to the point towards the end where I was, I was literally suicidal. I was using, I had a 20-bag-a-day habit. I was stealing. I was, I mean, you name it. I... They've done it all. It just came to the, it came to life or death for me. It was life or death because if I couldn't get clean, I was going to kill myself, but I couldn't leave Carter and Orph. So that was the motivation and really what got me sober and it went into recovery. I know you were struggling for quite a while. And how old was Carter when you finally got into recovery? He was 12. A lot of lost years with Carter. 
And so were you relying on family to care for yeah. him in times you couldn't? Absolutely. Yeah. My mother-in-law, Chris's mom. mom. Chris's yeah. mom. And my, and my parents took over as well. And my grandparents. So common today right. for grandparents to step in like that when their children are struggling with things Absolutely. like this. But so he's 12 and, and you are in recovery, stayed in recovery this time. Yeah. And were you able to rebuild a relationship with Carter? I was. So it definitely was difficult in the beginning. You know, there were some issues with my mother-in-law not wanting to bring him to visit me, which I completely understood. And he wouldn't get on the phone with me sometimes. So, I mean, it, it definitely was work. He needed to feel safe around me again. And it was just, for me, it was just about loving and nurturing him as he started to get older, just supporting him in everything and anything I could to make up for lost time. You know, when Carter got into middle school, seventh and eighth grade, I mean, he was in private schools, best of the schools on Long Island, you know, lacrosse, crew. He was brilliant. It was just so full of life. Were you able to get to a point where you Felt like you had a good relationship and you had earned that trust back. I would say once he reached about eighth grade and I would show up at every game, I would show up at every school event and every school play. I had to almost win him back, I felt like, and, and show up and be consistent. And consistency was the biggest thing because there had been so much inconsistency. That must have been a huge motivator for you to stay in recovery as well. Oh, he was my number one motivator, 100%. If you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for your children or do it for your, your parents or do it, you know, until you can love yourself enough to do it for yourself. And I would say for like the first five, six, seven years, he, he was that person for me. He was my motivator. And my purpose, my purpose, I, I had to be a mom as he got older and I was able to talk to him more about my past and about, you know, his dad and it just brought us closer. Did he like his dad? He was a lot like his dad. He had good qualities and bad qualities. So Carter knew that his dad died from a heroin overdose and he knew that his mother struggled with heroin addiction. Yes. And was on methadone. And yes, yes. And knowing all that, you would think he would never touch drugs. Mm -hmm. Right. You would think. Right. Those are the, the why, you know, the, the questions that run through my mind every day. The other one is, you know, why them? Why did they have to die? And I was blessed to, with recovery, you know, like there's a lot of survivor's guilt. I ended up moving to Florida three years ago to get out of an emotionally abusive relationship. His name was Tom and we met on a dating app and it was just another like love at first sight, if you want to call it, if I don't even really believe in that. But during this time, I, you know, was, had my own apartment. I was at a great job. I was I'd been a bookkeeper and I was making good money. I was getting, you know, death benefits for Chris. So that helped. And then I was laid off after years of, you know, lies and mistrust and false promises. My family was, it was really angry with me. 
as they should be. They were hurt. And so they weren't willing, you know, nobody offered, you know, so you can stay with me for a couple months. So I was kind of pushed. My back was against the wall. I had nowhere to go. And so we just said, okay, let's get an apartment in Brooklyn. That is probably one of the biggest regrets of my life because I was leaving Carter and not by choice, out of necessity. And my family couldn't have made me feel like I felt so much guilt already. And my family just piled on that guilt. So was Carter going to stay with your mother-in-law? Like he had a life there. I was back and forth every weekend, see him. And then as that relationship grew, I came to see that he was terrible alcoholic violent, mentally abusive, emotionally abusive, physically abusive. It was just awful. Being in a domestic violence situation, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, like, you know, they kind of poison your mind. It It destroys you. It belittle you to the ground. And I turned away from my family and I turned away from my friends. I wasn't allowed to have friends. Very controlling, looking through my phone. I, I had a pile of pink slips from calling the cops, like, the cops knew us. Like it, it was an embarrassment, you know. And with the help of my now husband, I was able to get an apartment in Brooklyn. He's a friend, and then he helped me out as a friend. My husband's name is Ray. We had been friends for like ten years prior, and then after I was living in Brooklyn for two years in my own place. So after two years of not being with Tom. Ray and I formed a relationship and then we decided to move to Florida together and get married. We bought a home and, you know, I was working. It was good, you know, like Carter and I would FaceTime three times a week and, you know, and I would go up every couple months and we would visit and he was in college at this time, majoring in musical engineering. Music was his passion. He learned how to play the guitar when he was sick. Did he like Ray? He loved Ray. When Ray asked Carter for his blessing, he asked Carter, you know, can I marry your mom? And Carter said, thank you, please. Uh, yes, like I give you my blessing. You, you are so amazing to my mother. So at this point, Carter's in college and you and Ray moved to Florida. We moved to Florida. So I knew in senior year of high school that like Carter starts smoking pot. I was drinking and going to parties. My first thing was always, you can always tell me anything. You can always be open with me. I will never be angry with you. I needed him to know that he could feel safe coming to me with anything. I would remind him constantly that you're playing Russian roulette. You know, like you, you, you the this, they're stacked against you. There's addiction in my family. Chris was adopted, so we don't know his past history. Just given that both his parents were addicts, I remember praying when I was pregnant, like, please let, like, cancel out for Carter so he doesn't have to experience that ever. So it was very hard to know that he was experimenting with what started off with pot and then he was Adderall and then a Xanax here and there. 20 years old is when it started to get out of control. How did you know? Did he tell you? He was telling me. He told me. 
he would say, you know, you know, I, I started taking Xanax. He, he wouldn't tell me, like, as he was doing it, he would tell me after, like, when he was in kind of a crisis mode. He'd call me up and he'd be like, I've been taking Xanax for, you know, like a month and I don't have any and I'm feeling sick and my skin is crawling. I feel like my heart's like, you know, all the withdrawal symptoms. I would just sit there and just try to talk him through it and tell him, take ashwagandha, take, you know, try some plant medicine type vitamins, or you got to go to rehab. Like it was mentioned numerous times that you got to go in, you got to go in, you got to go in. And I saw her getting, getting progressively worse. And he was 20. He had completed two full years of college. And then took a break because of the addiction, because he could not keep up with school. So really when he went to college is when it got back with the experimenting and party. That's not uh, unusual. Not at all. Not Although at all. we should make it so it's not tolerated. So Carter, two years of school, leaves because he's addicted to Xanax, basically. He detox himself off of the Xanax and switched over to oxycodone. And he was crushing them up. He was sniffing them. He would do it, I mean, like two times a week. I saw the progression. I was put in a really hard position because he was entrusting me with his secrets. But at the same time, like I needed my family to intervene. But I did not want to break that trust and then him just completely shut down because that's how Carter operated. But he was, he's very, very loyal. So I found myself in constant struggle. But having conversations with my mother-in-law during this time, she, she knew what was going on. Then by Christmas 2020, he fell down the stairs. I didn't even know it, this, it was this bad. He had begun communicating with me less and less. And, and he's he, still living on the East Coast and you're in Florida. Right. So I'm feeling completely helpless. And now he's out of my mother-in-law's house because he developed like rage issues, you know, would fight, punch holes in the wall. Like this was not my, my Carter. Like this was not Carter. And just constantly screaming with his grandma. I had the same issue with my daughter. She was an adult and she wasn't living in my home. And your Carter was an adult and he wasn't living in your home. First of all, we don't have any control over another human being, but half the time you don't know what to do and you can't force them to do anything. Nothing, nothing. And, and it's very hard because, you know, my dad pulled the tough love card with me. Like, you cannot live here anymore. I am not supporting you. I'm shipping you off, you know, from New Jersey to the, you know, East end of Long Island, done. And that saved my life. But with Carter, the tough love card wasn't going to work with him. He never really talked about his dad's death in therapy. He knew he had mental health issues. He would, was put on medication. He, he wasn't a talker. The way he expressed himself was through writing music. And after he passed and going back and listening to some of his songs, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, cause I'm hearing his pain and I'm hearing his anger, but he was drinking pints of vodka. He 
fell down the stairs at Christmas. Then he went into a rehab. So January of 2021, he's in rehab. Yep. So he went into a facility long-term. It was 90 days. He completed it. He came out, but he was different. That was the one thing that I noticed that like concerned me. Like he was still really depressed. He was still isolating, wasn't communicating with me as much. So he ended up coming down to visit me in Florida. He was just not himself at all. He literally, like we had all this stuff planned, like jet skis and going out on boats and all this stuff. And like, he didn't want to do any of it. We did sit outside a lot and we did a lot of talking just from his addiction to my addiction to the universe. We would have conversations about like, just kind of on a higher conscious. He was my son, but like, he was also my best friend because we understood each other so well. So he left Florida on a Friday night, went back to Long Island. He's now living at my sister-in-law's house in Huntington and ended up buying uh, oxys and overdosing. And they were able to resuscitate him. So he was revived with Narcan? Revived with Narcan. I get a call. He had just come from my house. So like my extended family were like, you know, did he get the drugs from you? Did he get the drugs from Florida? Like they like were just all over the place. He immediately went into a treatment facility, but it was like, this is life or or death. You continue to use, you will die. Like that's where it was at with him, you know? And he... Went back into treatment, was doing really well, got out, went into a sober house, walked in. This was two weeks before he died. He walked in on his roommate smoking crack. He had an appointment the following Monday to go to another sober house that was much better and closer to the family. And they ended up choosing another kid over him. He was just really upset that he didn't get into that place. And that was on a Monday. And then the following Saturday, which was November 6th, his girlfriend was on her way over. She comes into the house and knocks on Carter's door and like opens it a little bit and doesn't see him. So then she knocks on my sister-in-law's door and she's like, where's Carter? And she's like, he's in his room. So my sister-in-law gets up and goes in and looks and walks in a little further and sees that his chair to his desk is turned over and Carter's on the floor. She did CPR. The paramedics came. They gave him four shots of Narcan, and he was pronounced dead at twelve forty-six on November seventh. And it was twenty years to the day that my husband died. Carter's dad. Yeah. What do you think that means? I don't know. I don't know. And I've thought about it so much. And like, and at first, you know, so many people were like, "Well." Do you think he did it purposely? And I was like, absolutely not. Like, he wanted to live. I know that. What did he take? He took oxys that were pure fentanyl. And he didn't know that? He had no idea. No. These are not overdoses. These are poisonings. People don't know that fentanyl is in it. They're being deceived. They're thinking they're taking an oxy that's pure fentanyl. I mean, that is a poisoning. And murder. It's murder. It's drug-induced homicide. What is the difference between the grief of 
losing a husband and losing a child? So for for me now realizing that I never processed Chris's death. I'm so young, I have to move on with my life. Losing a spouse, as devastating as it is, you can get remarried. But when you lose a child, and Carter was my only child, not to say that anyone's grief is worse or better, but I, I have to say that losing a child is the worst type of loss. For me, anyway. I can't imagine what is worse than losing a child. It's hard to lose anybody that you love. Exactly. I'm not saying that it's not difficult to lose a spouse or, of course, you know, somebody close to you and your family. But when it's your child, it's just because it just shouldn't happen. And I know you're so early on in this with him. You're just shy of one year. You're you're hitting that one year mark. Yeah. How are you? coping or surviving you're doing a lot of it publicly i do that because just to try to break this stigma and just make people aware like 300 americans are dying a day from fentanyl this is the biggest drug epidemic or will end up being the biggest drug epidemic this country has ever seen it has been for a while right and nobody is talking about it nobody's discussing it i don't understand like why Every politician and every, like, why aren't they talking about it? Why aren't they doing more? Right, doing more, like declare it a weapon of mass destruction. We do not send fentanyl to Russia because they can use it as a weapon of mass destruction. But it's coming, it's flooding our country. Killing our young people. All these young lives. Your son was musically talented. My daughter was an artist. I mean... You think of all the loss to humanity. And here you and I are kind of left in the rubble of all of it, yes, right? Absolutely. You ask like how I'm how I'm doing and I not well. <laughs> the anticipation of the one year mark is something I cannot get out of my mind. And I know it's like this this build up to this these anniversaries or these milestones that we hit during grief. I feel like this is the first year that I'll really, truly be grieving Chris. So it's like, I feel like I'm just getting like a a double win. And being told from numerous, numerous mothers that the second year is harder. Second year is different. Different, right. I would say that the first year is shock. Yes. And just flat out pain. Yeah. Second year is depression, and that's where you have to take care of yourself, especially right. you already suffer from depression. Right. Yep. And yep. I think into the third and fourth years, you find that acceptance. Mm. But you have to find purpose in your life beyond your child's death or because of, I suppose for me, it's because of. I feel the same way. I worry about you, though, potentially relapsing because you're prone to that and you're yeah. dealing with so much grief. It's interesting because I would say when they hit about the, the nine-year mark, I don't ever even think about using. It's not an option. If I use, I will die. And for me, it's trying right now. I'm kind of at where I'm in this lull and I'm 
trying to find my purpose. I'm going to start attending an online class where I'll be certified to work in rehabs. So I think that will be very healing and give me a sense of purpose. I love that idea. Who's better qualified than you? Right, right. <laughs> That's what my therapist said. She's like, it's brilliant. So I, I you know, I, I, I mean, I want to help people like that. My, my pathway to healing is, is by helping people. Like, I, you know, I send out free Narcan to people. That's something I do. Every time I post on Instagram or Facebook, you know, anyone who needs Narcan and I've probably sent out over a hundred boxes. For me, there is purpose in helping others. I always say helping others helps my grief. It helps me more than Absolutely. anything else that I could do. I appreciate everything that you're doing. Mora is also creating memorial frames for those who have lost children to the drug epidemic. You can find out more information about that, along with resources for getting help from substance use disorder at emilyshope.charity. While you're there, also check out more episodes of Grieving Out Loud. Thanks for listening. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.